China has a lot of people involved in Canada that is trying to gain access and influence to your government. And they've been very effective. And I worry they're going to be more effective the longer that uh, Mr. Trudeau remains in power and that his party does. I am a husband, a father, a lawyer, a Christian, and a proud Canadian. I started this series because it was clear that our nation needs truth. Not just another biased narrative, but real information of substance. We need access to facts and the freedom to think for ourselves. I'm Leighton Gray, and this is Gray Matter. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Gray Matter. Well, as every Canadian knows, or every, everyone in Canada should know, uh, China ha has become an, an infiltration force in our, in our political structures, in really all of our institutions. And this is a matter of grave concern. In fact, uh, there's going to be a public inquiry at some point now in Canada, now that our rapporteur, our special rapporteur, has resigned. Uh, but so we thought it would be useful to have someone on the show who knows a lot about China. And we've been able to do that. Uh, we have uh, Brandon Weikert on the program, and he is a specialist in this area, a geopolitical analyst who's written a really, really fascinating book that I highly recommend. It's called Biohacked, China's Race to Control Life. And you could substitute life for everything uh, because the book goes goes well beyond just the, the you know, DNA and the science of it. Uh, so welcome to the program, Brandon. It's great to have you on Gray Matter today. Well, thank you for having me. It's an honor to be here, and and thank you for you're you're correct in your assessment that it is more than life. It's it's the entire world that they want to control in China. Yeah, so uh, we're going to get into it, and uh, we're going to introduce you properly. Before we do that on our program, we do something a little bit different. We have some framing aphorisms, and uh, I think you'll probably appreciate these. Uh, they've been selected in your honor. Uh, the first one is from uh, Xi Jinping. Uh, who said, well, in, in, in Chinese, and I, I expect this has been translated, uh, if the machinery for distribution in the present economic system of the world is incapable of properly distributing the productive wealth of nations, then that system is false and must be altered. Hmm. Uh, secondly, Vladimir Putin, uh, who said, uh, again, in Russian translated, people are always teaching us democracy, but the people who teach us democracy don't want to learn it themselves. Uh, we conclude Justin Trudeau in that one. And then finally, uh, Donald Trump, who is the subject of uh, one of your books, um, who said, we should have a new force called the Space Force. It's like mm -hmm. the Army and the Navy, but for space, because we're spending a lot of money on space. That's sort of a typical Donald Trump soundbite. So who do we have in the show today? Well, it's, it's Brandon Weikert. He is a prolific writer who is a contributing editor to, editor to American Greatness, the Asia Times, and the Washington Times. He's a former congressional staffer who holds an MA in Statecraft and National Security Affairs from the Institute of World Politics in Washington, D.C., and he manages the Weikert Report, World News Done Right. I like that name. He splits his time between sunny south, southwest Florida, where he is today, and bucolic northern Virginia. Uh, he's also the author of Biohack. This is one of the books that he's written that we're going to talk about today. Biohack, China's Race to Control Life. Uh, it's described as a, as a uh, 
uh, is a book that uh, I'm just going to quote here. Uh, it says, when COVID-19 erupted from Wuhan, China, under mysterious circumstances, the Communist Party of China covered up its existence for as long as possible. It is now apparent that there is more to COVID than what the authorities wish for us to know. Uh, Biohacked, China's race to control life, details the decades-long pursuit by the Chinese communists to dominate the biotechnology industry to control the very building blocks of life on Earth, to further their political control at home and their supremacy abroad. So, Brandon, I know this isn't your first book, but what was it that drew you to this particular topic? Why did you write this book? Well, it was um, really personal. I should say, in my opinion, of the books I've written, I think this is probably my best one. And my wife says it's the best one because it's the shortest. Um, <laughs> so, you know, brevity uh, is very important these days in the age of Twitter. Um, but personally, I, I just think the writing was uh, flowed a lot better. And I think the reason it did, as much as I love space and as much time as I spent dealing with the Middle East uh, when I worked in government, um, the it's a personal connection to me. So first of all, my wife um, is a geneticist by training. Uh, she worked at National Institute of Health. She uh, was part of the chain of command with uh, Francis Collins and and Anthony Fauci. Um, and uh, so there's that. Also, um, I do a lot of consulting work for the Defense Department, the U.S. Defense Department, specifically the Air Force. And I really talk to them about geotechnology, so the confluence of new high technology and how it's going to impact international security. Um, and biotech was one of the things that I always talked about. And it was just something that always interested me. Uh, and then lastly, I, I suffer from a very severe autoimmune disease. And so I have a lot of dealings with the medical community on a personal ba basis. So those three factors really made this sort of a personal journey uh, for me. Um, and the, the experience of COVID-19, I know it was, I know I have a couple friends from Canada who say that you think you had it bad in America with the lockdowns, try sitting in Canada during the uh -huh. lockdown. So I know that there were, there were, there Canada had it worse in many respects, but uh, here in America, we, we really did not handle the disease very well. And I wanted to know why it happened. And I wanted to understand how our government and our institutions could be uh, so uh, improper in their use of force against their own people. And so that was sort of the genesis yeah. of this book. Yeah. So uh, there's the part about what China did, which is becoming more and more well known. I think now everybody realizes or should realize is that, that uh, you know, not this... everybody. Well, they should, they should know <laughs> that this thing came from a lab in China. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, everybody except Anthony Fauci knows that, it seems. <laughs> uh, but, but, you know, one of the interesting things about your book when I read it is, and it, and it, it, it talks a lot about more so than uh, most other books I've read. Uh, for example, uh, I, I read uh, RFK Jr.'s book. Absolutely. Uh, and, and, and a couple others that cover this topic, but... Your book was somewhat unique in the way it got into the sort of appalling, egregious way that uh, that that China's rulers uh, sought to cover this up. That's one part of it. Yeah. And then the other part of it is the way that the those our our, our rulers, our experts in the West, bought into this. That, that yeah. all of this that was was really egregious. Were you surprised when you did when you did your research, sort of the extent of that? That that uh, that in the West we participated in China's plan. 
Yeah, um, it didn't surprise me necessarily. It was more appalling and it was sort of a letdown because you have to understand, not only does my wife actually spend years working at that institution in the NIH, um, I spent a long time in government as well. And I can tell right. you horror stories of how incompetent our government is. But it's one thing to say we're incompetent and that's just part of life. But it's another thing when you look at it and you go, my goodness, there were very imp important and powerful entities within our government that were actually engaged in what looks like a cover up um, to, to cover up to shield their culpability uh, in, uh, in, in what were really risky experiments, particularly with COVID-19, with coronavirus research. Uh, but more generally they're, they're continuing and have continued to do risky research with a, a whole plethora of different aspects of biotechnology in China. And when I asked, uh, and I quote him from an article that he was, uh, he was involved with, uh, the leading Stanford, um, bioethicist who's one of these legendary figures uh in the american medical community he's quoted in my book right. basically saying that hey um yeah we have the hippocratic oath which is the first do no harm as medical practitioners and uh researchers but the trump card with that there's a there's a caveat the trump card is always cures and so while we're going to not do harm we will happily uh, partner with a country like China that will do harm. We won't participate directly in those experiments. We'll fund them, maybe, uh, but we'll <laughs> reap the benefits of it. And that the Trump card is in terms of ethics is, hey, we got the cure for you name the disease. And to me, that's just not worth it. It's really not. Yeah. In that case, Trump is a bit of a. Play on words given Operation it is, I guess. Warp yes, Speed. <laughs> well, yes. but this is much broader than just the just the pandemic. For example, Absolutely. I, I, I know that you're aware of this. You said off off camera that you've actually consulted with with Canadian authorities on yeah. on the influence of China. Uh, but mm -hmm. what what has been revealed in Canada? I don't know if you've been following this in your country, but um, there there is now proven documented interference by China in each of our last two national elections in 2019 yeah. and, and 2021. And in fact, uh, there's a paper trail showing that yeah. they specifically supported the party uh, that has been kept in power, that has been yeah. uh, imposing uh, essentially policies that many Canadians disagree with that are right out of the World Economic Forum UN 2030 agenda that seems to be uh, uh, shall I say the the tip of the whip of Chinese hegemony in the mm -hmm. world? So, yeah. so, uh, and part of what you talk about in the book is, um, you know, we talk about China's race to control life, but really, it's China's race to control everything, isn't it? Right. 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 And they're starting with the literal building blocks of life and they're working up from there. They're scaling up. Um, the important thing to note. So what I, I, I didn't directly consult with the Canadian government. What happened was I was brought into a U.S. base that had a Canadian contingent. Right. And I briefed both elements, but I was not brought in by the Canadian government. But while I was talking, you know, afterward, we do this little confab afterward where I sort of chat with the top leaders. It's sort of informal. But the the lead general there was retiring. He was a Can the, the Canadian contingent general. And he came up to me and he he basically just started complaining about how much influence China has. And he said, you can't depend on us as long as you know who's in charge in Canada. Yeah. And I said, I got it. I got it. And he said, no, I'm not just 
saying because I disagree with him politically. He said, I'm saying because I think this guy is compromised and I think yeah. his party is. And then, of course, now you have these reports of actual yeah. paper trails. Um, and so if you if you look at what China's doing in terms of Canada, it's not just Canada. It's um, other elements of the five eyes. So the five eyes is the very powerful intelligence sharing network, United States, Canada, Britain, New Zealand, Australia. Um, that goes back to the Cold War. It's one of the reasons why we were able to stay competitive with the Soviet Union and beat them was that Five Eyes Alliance. That Five Eyes Alliance is a threat to China now, or at least that's what China thinks. So they're targeting individual members of the Five Eyes, the weakest members they think. And I'm sorry to say Canada is one of those yeah. weakest members in their eyes. The other one is New Zealand. And right. so if you look at what they're doing in Canada, they're doing the same thing in New Zealand. Yes. They were trying to do it in Australia and it was working until COVID. And then COVID was unleashed. And it was the Australians who said, no, this came from a lab and we want you to tell us why. And then suddenly Australia became one of the hawkish, most hawkish members of the uh, Anglo Alliance against China. Mm -hmm. But but Canada and New Zealand, unfortunately, are viewed as the low hanging fruit that China will pluck. And they are. And China has a lot of people involved in Canada that is trying to gain access and influence to your government. And they've been very effective. And I worry they're going to be more effective the longer that uh, Mr. Trudeau remains in power and that his party does. Yeah. You know, the, in fact, uh, the there's a, a woman who is the, the leading candidate in the polls to become the new mayor of Toronto. And many people are saying that she is, in fact, a Chinese asset. This weakness, yes, I've heard this. This, yes. this weakness of Canada in the eyes of China, perhaps the world, do you suspect that's part of the reason why Canada and New Zealand are being shut out of some of these new military alliances? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I think that's 100%. It's a self-defense thing. And, you know, it's it's very scary from a U.S. perspective because you've always been our peace. Well, not always, yeah. I should say. World's longest um, unguarded border. Yeah. Yes. But I mean, there is a history that precedes the 20th century in which Canada and the United States were not on friendly terms. Yes. And in a worst case scenario, it could go back to that where we were a bit frigid toward each other. Yeah. Um, I remember in 2016, I was part of a group when President Trump was elected, we were talking about building a, a, a proverbial wall, not just to the South, but to the North, because at the time I was saying we have a lot of issues with um, Al Qaeda and ISIS members sneaking across uh, our open border with Canada. They come into Toronto. They right. sort of hang out there. And then they come they come into our open border with the North. And then I was saying also there's a lot of Chinese mafia, Chinese organized crime interests that are doing the business of China's government and they're destabilizing our northern border. Um, I got a lot of flack from that. In fact, I got into it with a, a guy from your government, the defense ministry on Dan Damon's BBC show. Um, but, uh, you know, it's it's been a problem for at least five to six years and it's not getting any better. And so I hate to say this, but we are going to need to start looking at Canada with a little bit more trepidation than I think we'd like to. Yeah, I know Tucker Carlson, for one, has been drawing a lot of attention <laughs> to it. Uh, yeah. those, those, those who have studied the War of 1812 know that it was an upset, uh, usually basically a lack of American interest that, uh, that right. prevented them right. from conquering Canada. And, and, you know, there are people in my home province of Alberta, Ah, yes. uh, Brandon, who, who actually uh, have started something called, they're called 51st Staters. That's and right. They, they That's would right. Quite, quite quite welcome a conquering yes. force from the United States well, to be as honest preferable. With you, I yeah. would 
I would welcome it as well. The, the, the There's a natural, I think, marriage between us and Alberta. Of course, if Alberta goes, I suspect that Saskatchewan will go to yes. us as well. Yeah. And once you lose those two provinces, though, pretty much Canada kind of breaks apart as a united entity, which is why I'm sure it hasn't happened. I've always joked, I'd ra- I'd love to trade Canada. I'd say, we'll give you California and you can give <laughs> us Alberta and maybe Saskatchewan. Um, but I realize that's my bias showing right there. Yeah. Well, let's let's hope that that you know California is uh, is salvageable, and, and there's got to be a lot of really good people there still. There is. Uh, well, there's some great real estate too. I would hate to see it go. But uh. <laughs> yeah. um, one of the interesting things about uh, Biohack, your 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 book, coming back to it, is that you actually propose. You don't you don't just talk about problems. You actually have a solution. You, Thank uh, you for I saying read that. Here, yes. You you said in order to stop the threat, that you you propose that the world's nations create a comprehensive set of treaties for regulating biotechnology research and development. Do you want to talk about this a little bit? Because yes. this is something that I that it was unique to your book and some of the other ones I've read about China I and about that. and about COVID, that you're actually proposing boots on the ground solutions. Yeah. And so I just want to say as a quick preface to that, um, thank you for saying that because for so long when I do these public talks, um, the media people want to fixate on the, the the heavy stuff I write about, which is the doom and gloom, the problem. They never talk about how always in my work in the back half, I try to provide solutions. It's all they all they want to talk yeah. about is all the problems I'm talking about. So thank you for, for opening. That. I actually did so read nice. the book. <laughs> I know. I know you did. I know. And I really appreciate that because, um, yes, I do propose actual solutions. And these are these are tangible solutions. These are not pie in the sky. So um, one of the things that I propose in the book is I identify one of the biggest problems we have with China is the fact that so many U.S. based tech firms in order to gain access, and this is true in the biotech, but it's 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 all technology areas. So it's not just biotech. It's quantum. It's AI. It's traditional computing. It's all of those those high tech areas. In order for those U.S. based firms to to obtain access to China's market share, the Chinese Communist Party requires those companies to hand over proprietary intellectual property and or I say exclusive intellectual property. And these companies see only dollar signs, and so they happily do. Do that, not really caring or realizing that what they're doing is effectively feeding the crocodile, hoping right. that it'll eat them last. Right. Um, but ultimately, it will eat them. And so, what I propose is it doesn't require military action. And I say this to the military audiences, and they look at me dumbfounded. I say, you know, it doesn't require bullets and bombs. It just requires Congress, which <laughs> I know is a problem. It requires Congress to simply redesignate all or most tech transfers as bribes under the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act. And once you've designated those as bribes, you now have will probably cut at least in half those tech transfers because these companies are doing these tech transfers not just to make money, but because there's no barrier to them. So right. if the Department of Justice were to raise those barriers to them, suddenly at least half of those companies would would at the very least slow down the tech transfers, probably stop them because risk increases. And when you increase risk on businesses, particularly big high tech ones, they don't want to deal with the headache. So they just won't do it at all. They might right. find new ways to work around the rules. But that's one big thing we can do is, is reclassifying those tech transfers as bribes under the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act. Right. So this is interesting because you you sort of segued into another topic I wanted to canvas with you, and that is this this idea of uh, let's say rampant 
uh, corruption in government, you know, the, the deep yeah. state, you know, the, the blob, whatever, by w whatever yeah. euphemism you want to give it. This is a problem that uh, is, is very serious in Canada, as we talked about, but also um, the erosion of the rule of law is also something that mm -hmm. is very concerning that you, that you touch upon somewhat in your, in your book, because that's really what, what, what China is all about, is disrupting the rule of law in, in, right. in, in opposing nations. Right now mm -hmm. in the United States, uh, you know, a, a, f a former president, the most recent president, who is the, right. let's say, the front runner or the main <laughs> opponent to President, Bi president Biden in the, in the next election, uh, is being indicted. Yeah. And uh, I wonder, is there a connection between, uh, for example, China and foreign influence or global influence and uh, this unprecedented, or uh, correct me if I'm wrong, this is an unprecedented uh, situation where, 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 the, where the reigning government's uh, main political opponent is actually being taken out through, through a state-led prosecution. Yeah. Um, so the first thing I will say is that uh, I believe that the charges against former President Trump, and I say this as a Floridian, uh, who's I'm, I like DeSantis, but I like Trump as well. Uh, I supported Trump when he was president. You know, no questions asked. Um, but it is obvious that this is a these are politically charged investigations. It's very um, banana republic ish. Right. Uh, but I don't mean the clothing store. Um, so, you know, uh, this is not something that I would have ever believed in the darkest days of my life being in America. And I'm a millennial. I'm on the right. older side. I'm a millennial, but you know we've had scandals in this country. Um, you know, and it's nothing like what we're experiencing now. And there is a there. It is, should be noted that yes, technically, when it comes to the classified documents, it does look like Donald Trump did break some rules. Um, but it's in unfathomable to think that this would be going on with any other president. Furthermore, that this is going on when the sitting president, Joe Biden, had actually engaged in the same behavior for far longer <laughs> for his, you know, yeah. a thousand years in government that he's, you know, the guy's older than George Washington. Uh, you know, <laughs> so uh, it's it's disgusting to me, this double standard. And I think most Americans, and I'm sure Canadians looking from afar, are probably seeing this as absolutely disgusting. Even if you hate Donald Trump, this should be appalling, um, not because he shouldn't necessarily get a slap on the wrist or something, but because they're clearly throwing the book at him um, when, you know, the other guy that he's running against is not having anything happen to him. And you, you brought up China. And so I'm going to work this in here. I, I'm also a senior editor at a website called 1945.com. And I have been one of the people uh, uncovering this Hunter Biden, you know, global influence right. peddling scheme. Right. And the first thing that I became convinced by is that Joe Biden and that entire family, I call them the Biden syndicate. The Biden syndicate has been completely bought and paid for by the Chinese government. Um, right. And so I believe that that the Chinese Communist Party, Xi Jinping in particular, is very much afraid generally of a Republican getting back into office. But specifically, I think they have a real jag against uh, President Trump. And I think they loosed COVID-19 in part because Trump had effectively waged a trade war on China in 2019. And I think now to keep him out of office, they're having their Manchurian candidate, Joe Biden, 
uh, the president <laughs> who mentally isn't there, uh, basically be their puppet in going after uh, Trump with all this legal psychodrama. Right. Yeah, no, uh, uh, speaking of George, I, see, I seem to recall George Washington had the good sense to quit at 63 uh, instead yeah. of 82. But uh, <laughs> expanding this out a little bit, um, the point you just made about the sort of, um, let's say, attack on American hegemony uh, right. or Western hegemony, if, if we want to expand it out there. You wrote an interesting piece that I read uh, last year about why didn't Putin attack when Trump was the president. Right. You want to tie that into to what yeah. you're talking about, how the, att the attack on, because it seems to me to be connected. Am I wrong? Or? No, you're, com you're completely correct, is that this is sort of a, a web and uh, it, it, you know, it can be convoluted to ordinary people. So I'm happy that you brought this up. Yeah, I think, um, you know, the Democrats hate when I say this. I mean, most of my friends are actually Democrats. Um, so the Democrats hate when I say this, but it's 100 percent true. And I know it's true just by the way they react when I say this. Um, uh, the Russians feared Donald Trump. Mm -hmm. They feared him because let's face it. He was kind of the mad King and yeah. they didn't know they couldn't anticipate how he would react. Mm -hmm. And so the Russians were very measured when they dealt with him in office, not because he was their spy in the white house, but because they thought he was nuts and they didn't <laughs> want to have to deal with him. I mean, remember this is the guy Donald Trump, the supposed Russian agent, is the guy that in what, 2017 or 2018, as he's saying we have to get out of Syria, he gets word that 400 Wagner Group Russian mercenaries are about to overrun the U.S. military facility in Deir Azor. And what does he do? He has us expand our footprint and he kills all 400 of them in like 30 minutes. Right. And the audio recordings are insane. The Russians, because we intercepted the, the audio, they, they put them on in the press. The Russians are going on about the crazy cowboy Trump. And I can't believe he did this to us. And I can't believe this is happening. They, they weren't anticipating it. And so after that moment, when Trump went completely, you know, mad bomber on them, the Russians were very much afraid. So this thing in Ukraine would have never happened if Trump had gotten a second term. We would not right. be looking at a possible World War III with nukes over Ukraine because Russia would have checked itself. Whereas with Biden, A, Vladimir Putin knew what he was getting with Joe Biden. B, when Biden met with Putin in the run-up to the invasion of Ukraine, Putin sized him up. And he's and he saw what he thought was basically our version of Konstantin Chernyenko, which was the second to last Soviet premier who was completely aged and out of his mind and ultimately died in office. Um, and so he thought, I can push this guy around. And then point three, um, what does Biden do? Biden authorized the Nord Stream 2 pipeline, which ultimately we ended up blowing up. Um, and who then, did that? Was it was it? Well, I heard it, it might have been the Ukrainians. Well, uh, they were acting. On our beat, they were. Uh, we were all I sort see. of. We're all in this together, unfortunately. Interesting. Interesting. Um, and then, and then the last thing is, um, they Biden made that comment. I was thinking it was like forty-eight hours or seventy-two hours before the invasion commenced, when he basically, and I'm forgetting the exact quote, but he said something to the effect of, "If it's a marginal Russian invasion of Ukraine, we won't do anything." And so Putin oh, took yeah. all those inputs. And he said, this guy definitely isn't Trump. I can walk all over him. I'll yeah. get to Kiev in 30 days. And of yeah. course, thank God he didn't, he wasn't able to, but look at what it's cost us and look at, look at what it's, it's forced us to do. We've had to basically become Ukraine's 
economy, their military. We're not fighting there directly necessarily, but we're giving them everything they need, no questions asked. And that's limited supplies. Those are limited things that we have that we're giving them. Meanwhile, China refers to this as their strategic opportunity. It gives yeah. them a lot of wiggle room in their part of the world. And in my opinion, China's a much bigger threat to us than Russia ever will be. And right. we have many more interests in the Indo-Pacific than we do in old, fat, dying Europe. Right. And and it, it does seem to me, and, and you've written about this in some of your articles, that the war in Ukraine seems to be pushing Putin into Xi Jinping's arms. Uh, and they, they have this, this Sino-Russian alliance now that sort of looks a little bit like something that happened uh, <laughs> right around World War II started with the right. Nazis and the right. Soviets. Right. Now, the only now, now, of course, when you say that, people go, well, then that means that they're going to break up eventually. I don't know, because um, I, um, Vladimir Putin believes he can no longer do business with the West. Right. So this is a matter of survival for him. He literally needs China and India to a lesser extent. Um, and so he will happily become a junior partner in China's new empire, so long as he can be the top dog in Moscow. So right. that's what's happening now. And it's not necessarily because he wanted it to be this way. It's because I think he's severely miscalculated in Ukraine. And to be clear, he is wrong to be doing what he's doing in Ukraine. Um, but, um, you know, he's severely miscalculated in Ukraine. Now he's stuck holding the bag. The Americans and the Europeans and the rest of the West want nothing to do with him. So now, I mean, he's not just going to go away. He's got to go somewhere. So now he's going to China. And China, of course, wants him to come to them. They want these their largest border that he sh that they share is with Russia. And Russia's a nuclear armed power that has a history of going to war with China. So now right. Xi Jinping is getting his two greatest rivals, uh, Russia and the United States, to bleed themselves in Ukraine. Meanwhile, Russia's definitely running into the arms desperately of the waiting Chinese. But so now, too, oddly enough, is the Biden administration begging no. uh, for a better deal with Beijing on global warming and trade. And right. so now China's really flipping the script on us and they're really re they're really instituting a new Chinese empire with Russia definitely as a vassal and uh, America is something worse than a vassal as a quizzling, uh, right. you know, enervated uh, state run by a man who was bought and paid for by Beijing 20 years ago. Wow. So all the more reason to not want President Trump in the White House. And I'd like to maybe turn to... Or DeSantis, by the way, I should make yeah. it clear. It's, yeah. it's the any it's the two top Republican contenders are the most hawkish on China that I've ever seen. And so it, 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 I think in Beijing's point of view, Trump is probably the worst of the two. But DeSantis isn't going to go easy on them either. And so they would prefer Biden because he's yeah. their he's their guy. He's he's an empty vessel. Right. Um, part of this conversation, though, is something that uh, we talked about off the top of the show. I, I quoted that, made that quotation from from uh, President Trump about space, about and and he and and this is a segue into one of your other books called Winning Space: How America Remains a Superpower. This has a role to play in all of this, doesn't it? Absolutely. Uh, because this Absolutely. is the new frontier. My understanding is that. Um, uh, and, and this is in your book. I, I, I read this one. It was a very fascinating and unique book. I've never... Thank you. I was not familiar with really any of this. And I love learning new stuff. But here, uh, uh, when Donald Trump announced the creation of America's sixth branch of the military, the United States Space Force, 
Um, many in Washington scoffed, but U.S. rivals in China, Russia, Iran that we're going to talk about, and North Korea took notice. Why? Why is this space, this space, the final frontier, pardon the pun, why is this so important in this whole geopolitical game? Well, so as we say in the, as I say in the book, space is the ultimate strategic high ground, okay? And, in, yeah. and throughout history and warfare, whoever held the high ground usually was able to dominate right. you know, the, the even battle. In, even in sword fighting. Even in sword fighting, think yeah. back to uh, Thermopylae, the uh, the Greeks were able to hold off a much larger invasion force of Persians at the hot gates. That right. was until the Persians were able to climb those mountain passes and get yeah. above them in those mountains. And so, yeah. uh, you know, it's likely the, the famous Spartans and their allies would have been able to, to hold the Persians back indefinitely had it not been for the fact that the Persians got their way up on that high ground and were able to rain blows from above. Right. Um, and so when you, when you think about it like that, all of our, my, well, our nation, Canada is integrated into this system. So America and Canada both share a lot of space capabilities. Um, and this is actually the reason I was at that base uh, talking about this. Um, so for us to be a modern military force, we need to project power over vast distances. Our base, of course, is North America, which is far removed from Eurasia, particularly if we're talking about the Indo-Pacific, which is geographically a much greater expanse of, of territory to cover. So you need satellites for pinpoint navigation. You need it for instantaneous communication. You need it for basically taking a military that like ours, highly advanced, but yet is relatively small. Uh, it's an expeditionary force. Less than 1% of the U.S. population is in the military, and of that 1%, a very small fraction actually are deployed in combat. So what gives them advantages over larger foes is technology and integration through satellites. Right. And so our enemies have, have figured that out. And they figured out that space is the the sine qua non, that which cannot be without um, for the U.S. and Canadian militaries to operate effectively. And yet those systems have been left dangerously vulnerable to attack and disruption. Mm -hmm. And so for the cost of a few million dollars, an anti-satellite kill vehicle or a laser or um, co-orbital satellite, which is a small satellite with grappling arms that latches on to one of our systems and physically pushes them out of the way so that they're rendered inoperable. Um, for for a few million dollars, these are relatively cheap methods. Uh, counter space is what it's called. They can basically, in about half an hour, uh, deprive the United States of its access to space in a conflict. And what that will do is that will render U.S. and Canadian and NATO and J Japanese and all the allied forces on Earth deaf, dumb, and blind. And in that strategic chaos, a country like China, which would be fighting closer to its territory over, say, Taiwan, would be able to very easily step forth and and sort of methodically enact its vicious plan while the Americans and their allies were still scrambling, trying to figure out mm -hmm. why they're deaf, dumb, and blind. And so those mm -hmm. satellites are key. And beyond that, in winning space, it's that's the near term. But the longer term is, even if there is no space Pearl Harbor, which is what I hope we can avoid, with even without that, there is a new space race, notably between the United States and China. It's not just to take pretty pictures from the moon and to plant a flag on Mars. That's only part of it. It's to stay in those places. It's right. to put boots on the moon, boots on Mars, to put systems in the asteroid belt. Why? Because of space mining. 
And so the flag, you know, I'm a geopolitical guy by training. That's what I did at the Institute of World Politics. I was geostrategy. Uh, the flag follows trade. And so the space mining sector is the wave of the future. It will be by the middle of this century, I believe, the dominant industry for Earth. And whoever is the first mover in that industry will have significant economic wow. gains, but also significant strategic advantages. And China wants to dominate the space mining industry. Wow. That is really fascinating. Um, another reason why uh, certain people w would not want Mr. Trump back in office uh, is uh, his approach towards Iran, which is, of course, very different uh, to yes. the way the Democrats approach it. And Iran is sort of the new boy on the block, aren't they? They want to be, mm -hmm. they want to step up to the plate and be like North Korea. They want to be, be sort of a big boy on the block and, and enter this, right. this, uh, this supremacy game. And you've written a book about this that's about to be released right. uh, called The Shadow War, Iran's Quest for Supremacy. You want to talk about that book a little bit and then how that fits to. into this whole picture? Yeah. And so basically, uh, The Shadow War was actually supposed to be my second book. Biohacker was supposed to be my third. But as the publishing world works, sometimes things get switched around. So this is now my third book. Um, but um, it was born out of research for Winning Space. I have a chapter in Winning Space on what Iran's space program is doing, what it's capable of, and what its point is. Uh, and its point is not for peaceful purposes. It's it's to dominate yeah. and to give the Iranian military critical advantages over its regional rivals and to also augment its growing nuclear ballistic missile program. And so from that, I had a stack of research and that was way more than one chapter could fit. And I went to my then publisher, because um, Biohack is with a different publisher, but I went to, to my publisher at the time and I said, you know, I have all this research. It would be very easy with my background in government uh, to write up a book on Iran. And I was at the time I had liaised with uh, Jared Kushner and Avi Berkowitz a couple times for when they were talking about doing the Abraham Accords. And I said, let's do a book about this. And uh, that was the genesis of the Shadow War. And uh, I was, uh, you know, I, I pumped it out pretty quickly. But basically, what I was looking at was we look at Iran as sort of like an ancillary issue and in some respects it is but the middle east as as much as we hate to admit it the middle east is a very strategically important part of the world right. um, america does not need to make that its priority the priority should be the indo-pacific but it can't just walk away which right. tends to be what the last few presidents, including Trump, have initially wanted to do. It's mm -hmm. like uh, Al Pacino in The Godfather 3. Every time I think I'm out, <laughs> they keep pulling me back in. Right. And so that's the Middle East. And it's Iran that keeps pulling us back in. And so what I propose in the book is, first of all, I identify what extent threat they are. And I, I agree with the overall strategic desire, I think, of every American to be done with the Middle East. But I, I advocate in the book to be done with it in a smart way, sort of like Nixon's peace with honor in Vietnam. Right. You can't just walk away as cathartic as that would feel, because then you'd be handing the region over to Iran, which you are in, therefore handing it over to China and Russia. And that's that can't be allowed because there's a lot of resources there. 
There's a growing tech industry that China wants to dominate there. We can't let that happen. We need to have a hand in that region. And so what I recommend doing is we build off what the Trump administration did. They enhanced our regional allies in Israel and the Sunni Arab states, notably the kingdom of Saudi Arabia. And we told those countries, you're going to form a balancing coalition on the ground against a growing Iran. You're going to contain Iran for us. We're going to step back. We'll give you resources and guidance, but you, you know, tag your it. You're going to do it for us because we are all in this together and we all share an antipathy toward the regime in Iran, the Islamic the Islamist regime. Um, and that was where the Abraham Accords, I can tell you with a hundred percent certainty, no matter what people say in the media, that was the end goal of the Abraham Accords, to enhance those Sunni Arab states and Israel. Had Trump gotten the second term, Mohammed bin Salman of Saudi Arabia was 100 percent going to um, going to uh, come on board with the Abraham Accords as the last member. And that would have basically allowed for us to build out a quasi NATO of the Middle East, would have allowed us in theory to step back and focus on bigger issues while still maintaining our interest in the region. But of course, with Mr. Biden now, that whole thing has been flushed down the toilet along with Hunter Biden's cocaine. Yeah. Well, so uh, turning to our reading list, we have this is a feature we have on our show. Uh, with your explanation of these books, for which I'm very grateful because you've sort of tied them all together, this, this almost reads like a trilogy. So we've got Biohacked, China's race to control life. Uh, and you've talked about that one. We've talked about winning space and how that's connected to mm-hmm. what China is doing. And then we have the shadow war, which mm-hmm. talks about Iran as a sort of new a budding superpower that it sounds like China would want to have under its under its thumb, under its dominion. Um, yeah. Is that a fair way of, of, of sort of piecing your, your three books together? Yeah. Yeah. You know, I never thought of it that way, but particularly with Shadow War, because again, Shadow War was supposed to be my second book. I really didn't do much research for it because I had all the research done from Winning Space and I couldn't use it because it was so much. So yeah, I think that's fair to say. My, you know, what I focus on when I talk to the military, when I, I used to talk a lot to Silicon Valley, um, I focused on that confluence of, of, geopolitics with high technology. How do the two interact? How do they congeal? How do they affect each other? And the books are looking at different angles of that problem set because it's not a conventional military. I mean, the Iranian thing is probably the most conventional military threat space to a degree, but it's also got a lot of economics involved and private actors involved. So it's not just straight up military and biohacked, um, you know, the biotech space that I would say that's 80 percent, you know, civilian economic government, not military. The military right. comes on the back end. Um, and so how do we address these problems uh, using all the tools of statecraft tools that we've not been using? We've been using a hammer for about 30 years and, yes. uh, you know, playing whack-a-mole. Um, and that's just not a good good use of our resources mm-hmm. and time. So I think that's a, I never thought of it that way. You're the first person to put it that way. I think you're right. I think they are an unspoken trilogy. Right on. So it, I've I've read the, the the first two. I read uh, Biohack first, and then I read Winning Space. I haven't read Shadow War, but I am going to when it comes out. I but if someone that. were new to your to your work, 
Mm-hmm. Which order would you recommend as as the the most adv- advantageous in terms of understanding how you how you present your ideas? What order would you recommend? Well, everybody seems to be reading Biohacked first. I'm just going to admit, uh, Winning Space did well, but we knew going in it was going to have a certain limit to its audience. It's actually it surpassed the expectation of the publisher in that way because it wasn't just academicians who were reading it, although a lot of them did. Um, I would say probably Biohacked. Um, that I like I said, I think that's the best written one of the three. Um, but then I would definitely knock out Winning Space because I fundamentally believe now in, in Winning Space, I said the year 2022, because I wrote it in 2019, 2020. I thought really the year 2022 might have been the year there was a space Pearl Harbor and that Russia, not China, was going to do it. And we mm. did come very close, by the way. I had a reader really? write to me. Yeah, I mean, wow. we did because the one of the first things the Russians did as part of their invasion of Ukraine was they started knocking out Viasat satellites, communications satellites. Uh, Starlink has been used in a strategic way by Ukraine, and now Russia, along with China, are developing capabilities to knock those Starlink systems out oh. in a space Pearl Harbor to debilitate Ukraine. Um, and so. Um, you know, we came very close to 2022 being the year of Space Pearl Harbor. It didn't happen, but I think it's as easily likely to happen in 2023 uh, as it was in 2022. My hope is it doesn't. I, I always tell people I'm happy to be proven wrong. <laughs> I, I take that as a blessing. Um, but um, I would say re-winning space after Biohacked and then uh, definitely the Shadow War. Um, the Shadow War is... Um, we, we're ignoring Iran, and I say this all the time to the military, we are ignoring Iran and we are ignoring the Middle East, and I realize why, um, but that that's not one to ignore. Right. So um, now what we do, the way we finish off here, and I'm so grateful to have you on the program because so much of what you fun. talked about is uh, is is very novel uh, to, to Canadians, and uh, and to our audience, we also have, thankfully, we have some American viewers uh, who perhaps are are new to your work. Uh, so let's finish off this way. Um, are there any books that you would recommend, not necessarily your own work, uh, mm-hmm. that would enhance uh, people's understanding of the work that you do? Or or do you think is, is a, perhaps just a very important book that people could read to get a better sense of, of, uh, of your work and the important things that, that we're facing geopolitically? Yeah, there's, there's quite a few. I'm, I'm a, you know, I, the best, and I wouldn't say I'm the best, but I would say a decent writer is a great reader. And so I have definitely read a lot of books. Um, in terms of, I'm actually in the middle of one right now. It's Orlando Fiji's new sure. book. He's a Russia expert. It's called The Story of Russia. And it's a very readable, brisk, but powerful history of Russia. Oh, he wow. also wrote another book in 03 called Natasha's Dance, which was a cultural history of Russia. I highly recommend anything by him on Russia. He is probably, the, I think, the world's most readable Russia expert. Um my colleague at the Asia Times, David P. Goldman, has a book, You Will Be Assimilated, which is all about China's push to dominate the Fourth Industrial Revolution. Um, the late, my, my, a colleague of mine, the late Curtis Ellis, wrote a book called Pandemonium, uh, which was phenomenal. Gordon Chang, he's written several books, including The, uh, the Coming Collapse of China, um, and I highly recommend that. Um, and I, you know, there's so many books out there that I have had the pleasure of reading and the authors I've actually had the pleasure of getting to know, um, that I, it's too many to count, but I would say those are some good, good ones to start with. Definitely. 
Thank you. Thank you so much. And Brandon, I know that uh, you have, uh, you're very active uh, writing. You have your own website. I believe you have a Substack as well. Is that right? Um, I, st- I started a Substack and then I never did anything with it. I'm okay. working on it. I'm, I, um, you know, the problem is, is there's only so many hours in the day yes. and I, you know, I'm now a senior editor at 1945.com, which, uh, you know, is a great gig. I love it. And, uh, I pretty much do. I'd now I'd say 80% of my writing there because, uh, I, I like the pay and they're a great group of people to work with and they allow me a lot of freedom. Excellent. So, but if people wanted to find some of your articles that sure. I mentioned, uh, would they just find those uh, at your own website? Uh, you would Weikert? find a lot of them at, at the Weikert report.com. Um, mm-hmm. Admittedly, I've stopped updating it about six months ago. Um, but if you were to just Google my name, you will find where I yes. write and uh, follow me on Twitter at we the Brandon. I'm um, a prolific, unfortunately, prolific tweeter. Um, and, um, have some rough elbows I've been told, but uh, you have to on that site, but, but I, you know, that's definitely, uh, my website's a place you can find me and I am going to get the Substack going eventually. Great. Well, hopefully you'll find time. Hire a junior, uh, I might, or something. I might at yeah. this point. <laughs> <laughs> well, listen, it's been a real pleasure having you on the program. I really, a pleasure being, thank I you. really enjoy your books and, uh, I wish You're you much, much you. continued success with, everything that you're doing and uh, thank you so much for being our special guest today on Great Very Matter. Hard. We're going to we're going to feature your books on Wonderful. our thank on you. our website. We have something called the reading list. So awesome. folks will be able to find them there and I really urge people to read them. They're 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 brilliant. I, I really learned you're a lot. Very from kind. Them. Thank you. Thank you. I really I really appreciate that. That means a lot. <laughs> <laughs>